Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Eric Kaufman. Eric is a political scientist who's written several great books, including Will the Religious Inherit the Earth and White Shift. Eric was a professor at Birkbeck College, University of London for many years. I think he was actually the head of the department there before he was pushed out for his political views. So we talk about that story at the top of this interview. And then we talk about a whole bunch of topics. We discuss the sociologist Daniel Bell. We talk about why birth rates are declining in the secular world and why it matters. We talk about high birth rate populations like Hasidic Jews and the Amish. We talk about the tension between liberal politics on immigration and liberal politics on LGBTQ. We talk about why Canada and Scotland are so much further to the left on gender and trans issues than America is. And finally, we talk about why it is that conservatives appear to be happier in the data than liberals generally, and why religious people also tend to be happier than secular people, and what lessons, if any, we can draw from that. This was one of my favorite podcasts I've done this year, and I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, Eric Kaufman. Okay, Eric Kaufman. It's great to finally get you on the podcast. Coleman, it's great to be here. I'm glad we were able to do it. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of knowing you for a while and reading you for a while. You have excellent books uh, that I can't recommend enough. It's really a pleasure to f- finally get you on. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, and it's it's all those years since we first met at the uh, 2018 Heterodox Academy. That's right. Can't believe it's been five years. Jesus. So uh, before we get into your books and, and your writing, let's just talk about your new uh, affiliation. You've had a major... Uh, change for, uh, after 20 years. Can you talk a little bit about um, ab- about what happened? Yeah, so I was a tenured professor at uh, Birkbeck College, University of London, and, you know, really enjoyed my time there. I think, however, I mean, what, what started to happen, I mean, it's a phenomenon that, of course, happened on both sides of the Atlantic with the rise of progressive illiberalism in, it happened a bit later in Britain. Uh, so essentially, there's no problem with the, the sort of management of the university who acted very well, but, and my colleagues who I'd known for many years, but there were, you know, we got a new colleague in who was an absolute ideologue, young, young woman who came into the department. I was head of department. And, and so you, you might've thought that, that the power might reside with me, right? In this relationship. But in any case, she didn't like that I was taking part in a, a debate over ethnic diversity and immigration in Britain, even though the debate essentially had more leftists than people on the right. We had more people of color than not, et cetera. But is, is it awkward to name this person or? No, no, her name. Yeah. I mean, her name's Lisa Tilly. Uh, so yeah, she or kind of, anyway, she claimed to have left the university because she didn't like my views. She claimed my views made her feel unsafe. And you know, so when she, did, when and, did she leave? Well, she claimed to, that, that she left, uh, you know, the job that she loved because of me and then et cetera. And of course, what happened was she actually just took a job next door at a university called SOAS, but that wasn't made public in her uh, sort of public resignation in 2020. 
2021. But as part of this and a, and a series of other processes, what occurred was, you know, there's a lot of publicity. Yeah, this in, was reported at the time, right? Yeah, yeah it was yeah. reported. It wasn't the only thing. There were a couple of other events. There's the odd Twitter mobbing and the odd kind of open letter. But the net result of all this was just a certain, it injected a kind of awkwardness into everyday collegiate academic life. And, and so it, yeah. It had a kind of ripple effects on other people who shared her view of you or? They didn't share her view. She was actually relatively unpopular. Uh, and even though, you know, this is a conventional department, it leans left, but she wasn't a, a popular figure. It's not that. It's more that because of the this making the press and radical students and, and alumni writing in and et cetera, it just created a, an environment of awkwardness between people that I'd known for a long time. And it's just that I knew what they were thinking. They knew that I knew what they were thinking. And, and, and so it just makes things a little bit weirder. And, and, and so I would say, now, was this enough to make me leave? No. And I didn't leave and I wouldn't have left. Then the university had some financial issues, uh, which, which the combination of those two things eventually, plus the opportunity of joining the University of Buckingham, which is probably going to well, it has the only option or the only chance of becoming Britain's only free speech university. Out of 181 institutions, it's a small private university. It was sort of founded by Margaret Thatcher in the late 70s, but it still has a broadly a left-leaning professoriate, left-leaning student body, but it scores very well on free speech indicators. And so the aim is to try and build up a kind of heterodox social science center there and to try and kind of explore topics which you either can't explore or you can only explore at your cost at in a regular university. Now, this isn't sort of like extreme stuff that you can only publish in the Journal of Controversial Ideas, like the ethics of pedophilia or race and IQ or anything, but there's just a vast, vast field of studies that have not been undertaken uh, because it's just very difficult to get published or uh, if you do take certain positions on issues, uh, you know, for example, gender or race inequality, if you were to explain that for reasons other than discrimination, then, then that's going to be difficult, right? Overall, colleges in America versus colleges in the UK, which score better on free speech and viewpoint diversity? I mean, I think Britain is a little bit better. Not that they're great on free speech necessarily, but they don't have the sort of DEI administrative bloat because they don't have the money to afford that. Um, they also, it's not been quite as bad. Um, now, there's been quite a bit of cancellation, particularly of gender critical uh, scholars and harassment of them. So it is bad in certain respects, but I don't sense quite as much activism on the part of the students, and certainly there isn't the administrator class. Having said all that, the same trends of rising, no platformings, rising targeting of academics, not to quite the same extent, but it's still there in Britain. It takes off more like 2017 rather than 2015 in the US, but it peaks around the same period, 2020, 2021, uh, and then it starts to go away. There is a lot of movement to quote unquote decolonize the curriculum. That's kind of a mainstream thing now in Britain. So the emphasis there is is less so on the kind of anti-racist um, reckoning, but much more on the kind of colonial reckoning, Britain's colonial past and kind of wanting to decolonize reading lists. So that'll be, that's sort of a push. In some cases, it's it's aggressive and heads of department are asking you for your reading lists and sending them back to you for correction. But that's department by department. It's not a university-wide policy. Why does there seem to be so much more 
gender ideology in Canada and, and say, Scotland as opposed to America? Well, okay, so Canada, you know, where I'm from originally and and Scotland, what's going on? So in the Canadian case, I think this is shaped by the politics of the country. Canada, you may or may not be aware, was essentially a British dominion. The identity of Canada after the American Revolution was as the British America. That lasted until the decline of the British Empire in the 50s and 60s. You then had a vacuum of identity, which was filled by the idea that Canada is going to be this moralistic left-wing America. And so that was the new Canadian identity. And that's actually quite a hospitable structure for doing left-wing radicalism. Um, and so what you get in Canadian politics is you don't really get much of a conservative opposition, especially not on cultural grounds. Um, and so the left has a freer hand. The, it's not that the Canadian left is crazier than the American left. It's not. It's, it's largely a mirror image. But the difference is there just isn't the opposition there the way you have here. Here it's a fight. There it has been a a steamroll, although it's interesting that we mentioned that. I don't, I don't know if you're aware of this million-person march that took place yesterday in Canadian cities against gender uh, t gender ideology in schools. Yeah, so that was a uh, that's an example of some of this very grassroots mobilization, which has to occur because was that was that metaphorically a million people or was it? The count has yet to come in, and I don't know how many. There were apparently ten ten thousand in Ottawa. I mean, it's not been covered by the mainstream media. It will be covered by the alternative and the and the conservative conservative press as well. So we'll we'll have to see what the total number was. But there is a kind of very uh, grassrootsy resistance because the political class is not, the kind of conservative politicians are not resisting. Now that too has just started to change. So there has just recently been a few uh, provincial premiers starting in New Brunswick, which is kind of a very important turning point. Blaine Higgs there uh, essentially said that parents will have to be notified if their uh, child transitions at school and use as different pronouns. It's not a ban. It's just to say parents should be notified. And surveys show that like 85% of Canadians think that's the right policy. It was seen as awful transphobia, hate, etc., by Justin Trudeau and by the, the commentariat. But a number of premiers now have followed suit in the, the where you have a conservative administration. So there is a slight, the first green shoots, I suppose, of a, of a political pushback. But compared to the U.S. case where you've got, you know, red states, which are really in the forefront of resisting this, and, and you have blue states, it's nothing like that. It's just, it's dominated more by, you might say, the blue side with a little bit of much more moderate resistance. And Scotland? Scotland, okay. So here's an interesting one. Attitudes on gender ideology in Scotland are actually more anti the gender affirming ideology That's what than I would in England. Think. Yeah. So in Scotland, you know, you'd think by but looking at the attitudes, it's the reverse. But policy-wise, it's the reverse. Now, why is that the case? So, um, of course, in poli political science, we have this term salience. You, you probably know about where you know when the attitudes of the population might be very against something, but it, if it has a very low priority or salience for them, so if they're mainly concerned about uh, Scottish independence from from Britain, then the issue of gender ideology falls down their priority list, or they don't think about it, or they're not aware of it. That was the case in Scotland. So the Scottish National Party could be really, really sort of pushing the trans agenda. So they wanted to sort of lower the age of, of, of consent for this. And and so they, they had this sort of agenda and they were getting away with it until the government, Richie Sunak in, in, in the British government more or less said they were going to contest the, the authority because it, it has implications. If you can easily get a, a gender recognition certificate in Scotland and if you then move to England, it has all kinds of implications Britain-wide. So this was then being contested. The Scottish government tried to pretend that this was sort of infringement on Scottish kind of sovereignty by the English. Um, 
But then you had in the press a picture of uh, this very tattooed male rapist who was going to to a women's prison. And that blew up in the press and it puts Nicola Sturgeon of the SNP on the defensive. So she was asked, you know, is this person Isla Bryson? Is this is this a man or a woman? You know, is Isla Bryson a woman? And she refused. She said, Isla Bryson is a rapist. You know, she wouldn't she wouldn't answer the question. But eventually it led to it was one of the ingredients in her downfall. So I would say Scotland's kind of turned around on the gender question, but it took that vivid political image to raise the salience and cut through into people. And then eventually they said, ah, oh, actually, this is kind of crazy. Okay, so let's back up in your own intellectual life. I know that Daniel Bell is very important for you. What is it that, uh, what insights did he have that have been the most crucial for for your intellectual journey? Yeah, I think Bell is a, is a huge figure. Uh, of course, one of the original New York intellectuals, that sort of Jewish intellectual, largely Jewish intellectual tradition going from left to right in a way in the, in the 60s. Well, not earlier, really, as a reaction to, to communism and, and Stalinism, but then in the 60s, responding to the student movements. And what Bell and Nathan Glazer and, and a number of other New York intellectuals were doing was they were, they were witnessing uh, a very emotional, what they would perceive as a very anti-intellectual, anti-academic standards kind of movement, uh, where people, these student protesters, weren't interested in debate. They weren't interested in reforming institutions. They just wanted to sit in and protest and yell. And that really struck them as, as kind of a threat to the liberal tradition. And, and so some of the writing of Bell on the excesses of the student movement. Now, of course, he then wrote The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism in 1976, which kind of brought together some of his thinking on this and, and really started to develop a theory of the cultural left. Because I think that's what was interesting to me is, you know, we if you study the left, most books will simply talk about the Marxist left and, and various strands of Trotskyism and Leninism, whatever. But it's this sort of cultural left, which interests me more and I think is more relevant since the late 60s. It's this cultural identity version of the left. Um, and Bell does a good job of kind of tracing that back actually to an earlier period, the rise of modern art, the revolt against tradition, and that this, this opposition to tradition, the opposition to, what's the word, I guess, taking in a work of art and reflecting on its depth and its meaning and replacing that with the shock of the new and the different. Um, I thought that was really, I'd never read anything like that. And I just, that, so that book really was influential. And then I, I tried to, you know, I had a, I, I had a little bit of a correspondence uh, with Bell in the, I guess, the early 2000s, maybe, no, maybe as far back as the mid nineties. And I, I luckily managed to meet him a couple of years before he died and, and had a good chat with him as well. So that was a high point. Okay. So let's get into your book, Will the Religious and inherit the earth. Now you wrote this book, I believe in 2011, right? Yeah. You're published in 2011, over 10 years ago. Since then, the issue of differential birth rates between the religious and the secular, I, I would say has risen, has risen in prominence. Elon Musk has even, I think, talked about it or tweeted about it. I mean, this is, I view this as one of the most interesting uh, and consequential long-term trends that is the like rarely discussed relative to how interesting and important it is. So can you briefly sketch out your thesis in that book? What What is it about the different birth rates between the very religious and the secular that has long-term implications for, you know, liberal democracy? Yeah. So I think there are really two things going on. Um, one is that the religious parts of the world, basically all of the world's population growth is taking place in a kind of tropical belt that is 95, where 95% of people are religious. 
have a religion and believe in religion. The parts of the world that are aging and declining, East Asia, Europe, and increasingly now North America, uh, are the most secular parts of the world. So globally, the world is becoming more religious simply as a byproduct of the fact that people are getting religion the old-fashioned way through birth, and most of the births are, are in religious countries. So that's happening globally. Now, if you then pr bring in migration, you're, you're getting a migration south to north of religious people into increasingly secular contexts. So if you look at cities like London, Paris, etc., um, they are the most religious part of their respective countries because of immigration of people from essentially the, the developing world, which is religious. So you're getting... Whereas classically, the cities would be the most secular section. Right. And they are, I mean, if you just take the, the say, the white British population, you know, London white British people might be slightly more secular uh, although I think actually that's disputable. I mean, but they may be ever so slightly more secular in certain neighborhoods um, than white British people outside. But but that's not much difference there. But yeah, it's because if you look in London churches, you know, it's it's upwards of two thirds ethnic minorities. And, and you know, these are people from Africa, some east from Eastern Europe, but from all over the world. And that's really what what's keeping Christianity going uh, in Britain in a way. So what is the the message there? I mean, the message there is essentially that at the global level and perhaps increasingly at the level of Western countries, religion is returning via demography. So demography uh, is bolstering religion. Now, it's also true, of course, that countries are continuing to secularize. Now, in Europe, where you've got you know, typically 5% of the population attending in many countries on a weekly basis, religion is already very weak. But the proportion of, say, English people who claim to tick the Christian box in terms of their religion has dropped from 72% in 2001 to 46% in 2021 on the census. There's a census question. So there's been a big drop in even Christian affiliation and identification. And we've seen that in the US as well. So you're getting the kind of, if you like, the host population um, becoming more secular and you're getting religious immigration. The other thing, of course, is that at the children of immigrants, especially if they're non-Christian, will retain the religion because the religion is part of their ethnic identity. Part of being a Bangladeshi is being Muslim. Part of being Indian is being Hindu. And so actually they retain into the second, third generation, their religion. And that means you're getting a buildup of religious affiliation and even practice, uh, particularly in the immigration gateway cities. And that's really increasingly the future of many of these Western countries as their populations are ethnically shifting. So it's not just an ethnic shift, it's a shift to some degree away from secular towards somewhat more uh, religious societies. And so that's kind of one trend. Now, the other, the other thing that's going on is these very, very highly world-denying call them fundamentalists. I, I, fundamentalist is the wrong term, but world-denying, highly religious sects like the Amish, Hutterites, ultra-Orthodox Jews, to some extent, the, the traditionalist Calvinists in the Netherlands are another example. You know, these are groups that have birth rates that are several multiples of the rest of the population. And not only that, but you know, if the birth rate of the Amish, let's say it's gone from seven children per woman to five children per woman, you know, if the hosts, the rest of the population goes from five children per woman to one ch uh, child per woman, five to one versus seven to five. So it, it was seven to five, it's now five to one. You just look at those ratios. Five to one is a much bigger difference than seven to five. And so over time, the shift is, is very rapid in the population. I just looked it up. I th tell me if I'm wrong. I think the Amish population in Pennsylvania has doubled in the past 20 years. Yeah, they, they have a, a doubling time roughly of 25 years. Um, now, if you, now they kept that rate going for 100 years. 
if you were to actually keep that going, if they kept that going for another 200 years, they're pushing 300 million now, because we can have a whole debate about what it might, what might happen. You might get a kind of moderating uh, sect to church moderating movement. And we've seen that amongst some religious sects, and that could take some of the steam out of their birth rate and retention rate. But that may or may not happen. We don't know if it'll happen. I mean, similarly with the ultra-Orthodox Jewish population, you know, the Jewish population, the observant Jewish population of the United States is estimated to be a majority ultra-Orthodox by 2050. The Jewish first grade class in Israel in 1960 might have been a few percent ultra-Orthodox, and it's now a third. And so, I mean, if you run the numbers on this, I mean, it's just... That's like, that's an effective birth rate alone, basically, in Israel, right? Well, there's two things, right? There's one is birth rate, but the other is retention of the children. And the stricter your religion, not only do you have generally a higher birth rate, but you also have higher retention because, you know, leaving the ultra-Orthodox is not like leaving the Episcopalians. You know, this is not something you just do on a Sunday. It's your whole life. It's your family, your friends. It's your everything. So to break from that is just a huge step. And so it's just not a step many people will take. You'll have some people who will convert away from ultra-Orthodoxity. And there, there are all kinds of estimates of the number, but it's still a minority. And it's not nearly big enough to off- offset the birth rate difference, right? Correct. You know, the only kind of revised, the only revision I would make to the book's data and findings concerns the Mormons. It does seem to be increasingly the case that the Mormons, or at least the bulk of Mormons, are kind of converging more with the general U.S. white population. I mean, the Mormons have always had kind of one. That's a good question. I would say it's because the Mormons are not like the Amish or the ultra-Orthodox. They're not world-denying in the same way. They're a proselytizing. And once you're proselytizing, you're having to interact with uh, the wider population. And that's actually, it's a plus in that if you can get converts, but it's a minus in the sense that you are now exposed and, and adapting to modern society. And so you're then susceptible to modern trends like declines in birth rates, um, which will, and also, you know, there's intermarriage, there's people leaving Mormonism. And so I think Mormonism does appear to be converging. Now we'll have to watch. There may be a breakaway movement of really orthodox Mormons who kind of reject this new path and maybe they will then become the the Amish of the Mormons and they will be the ones who will have the the very high birth rates and and the high retention rates. And so we'll have to watch what happens with them. But on the whole, because they're quite a large group, like 2% of the total population, if they had maintained their degree of, of, particularly in Utah and adjacent areas, if they maintained their birth rates. I mean, you look at something like, uh, you look at the population profile by age, by state, comparing like Colorado and, and Utah, you know, Utah's under 15 population is, I think it's like 75% white. It's much whiter than surrounding particularly Colorado, surrounding states, which where the older population is just as white as Utah's. But the young population in Utah is a lot whiter because of the high Mormon birth rate. And yeah. This theoretical argument, you know, like, like many predictions, it can seem abstract and not tangible yet because that this world hasn't manifested, except when you consider the case of Israel, where uh, which in some way could be the canary in the coal mine for the, for the rest of the world. As you said, the the ultra-Orthodox used to be a single-digit percentage. Now they're a third of people under a certain age. And this has had an actual effect on Israeli politics, given that the ultra-Orthodox are by and large on the right wing of, of, of Israeli politics, which is not the same as saying they're right wing in the American context. 
nevertheless, this has had a very big impact. You, you, you see, you know, the exception from military service, which used to be not such a big deal that the ultra-Orthodox didn't have to serve in the military. Now that, now that their population is much bigger, it's a real sticking point for the Israeli left that they don't have to serve uh, or that uh, many of them are on welfare. And the way that the Israeli left talks about people on welfare is similar to how the American right sort of like used to talk about people on welfare. So it's it's inverse. And Israeli politics has moved to the right partly as a result of this, because it's a democracy and the numbers matter. I think it's, it's uh, I guess I just, I, I just point that out to people. Like if this seems like an abstract concern, it's already happened in Israel. Yeah, it, it has happened in Israel. And I think Israel is kind of a, a perfect test case of you get a society shifting, you know, often in the West, we're used to society shifting to the left culturally over time, younger people being more left in their attitude or liberal in their attitudes. So Israel, we've had the opposite. Yeah, the country is founded really by secular Jews that were socialists, secular socialists. That's right. Exactly. Secular or secular nationalists. And, and they have essentially lost out over time because they've lost the war of numbers. Um, you've got, I mean, you have three sort of groups. You have the ultra-Orthodox, sort of, you know, classically black hats, etc. And then you have the modern Orthodox uh, who don't have, they, they certainly don't have the retention, right? So they have much lower retention because they're much more modern in their outlook. On the other hand, they're more nationalist in some ways. They're in the forefront of the settler movement. But they also have higher birth rates. And so you have these two, you know, you have two kind of right of center broadly speaking, religious groups, the modern Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, I mean, the ultra-Orthodox were interesting because they kind of rejected the, the Zionist project for a long time and came to be reconciled with it and have come to be included on the, in the right coalition. But the net result of their growth is is that their parties get more votes. And of course, the rabbis have a lot of sway over how people vote. And so that's a big voting block. And yeah, over time, they grow. Now, of course, there's all kinds of in Israeli politics with coalitions and so on that things can happen and scandals. But still, with all of the ups and downs, the general trend is going to be towards, yeah, towards them having more power and more power and eventually shifting politics. So they've shifted politics to the right. I'd say something similar as you can point to, you know, if you look at the religious right in the United States, for example, I mean, there was an interesting paper that showed that three quarters of the growth of white conservative Protestantism in the 20th century was demographic in the United States, and that the growth, you know, going essentially if you were to take people born in the early 20th century, only about a third were con from conservative denominations among white Americans. And by the time we get to people born in the 1970s, it's like two thirds. And this is a due to about a one child demographic advantage of conservative Protestants, which is not, which is, which is narrowed, but is still there. Um, so even in the U.S. case, I mean, the rise of the, of Reagan and the rise of the religious right is, is not necessarily conceivable without also some kind of a demographic change. And so, yeah, this is, de demography does have an impact on politics and this religious demography uh, is no exception to that. So what accounts for low secular birth rates? Why, why, why aren't atheists having more babies? Well, there, there's an argument called the second demographic transition. And it, it, essentially, to try and put this in layman's terms, um, you know, when you needed children to work the land, you needed your children to care for you in old age because there was no state welfare and we were an agricultural society. It didn't matter whether you were highly religious or an atheist. You had to have a lot of kids. Many of them died anyway. It really wasn't about uh, culture. Once we get uh, prosperity, urbanization, contraception, the link between sex and procreation is broken and it's a choice. The choice in an urban society becomes very much one down to, to cultural values. So that means values are driving 
uh, fertility rates much more than material necessity. If you look at large-scale global data sets in developed countries, religiosity is more important even than women's education in determining birth rates uh, and fertility rates. So what you have then in the sort of secular individualistic West is a kind of, you know, a value set that would prioritize other things over traditional gender roles for women, large families in the domestic sphere. And those who are more religious and particularly fundamentalist will will tend to more value those traditional gender roles, pronatalism, etc. And so that counts, I think, for this for the birth rate difference. I don't think talking about house prices in New York and London is is the answer to what's going on. I'm afraid I, I just think these materialist explanations don't really hold water when you look at them in detail. And so I don't think there's really a lot of whole lot of combination of, of economic structural changes that are going to make much difference uh, to the birth rate in Western countries. Yeah. I agree with you. And I, I basically said that when I had Matty Glacios on this podcast for his book, One Billion Americans, where he was somewhat more optimistic about the possibility of public policy increasing the birth rate. That seemed a bit fantastical to me, just given the the global ubiquitous quality of the birth rate decline in every singular secular society, every single secular society on earth, the, the cause can't come down to the particular public policy choices of any particular country. It has, there has to be a more global cause that has to do with just, uh, in some way, the fact that there's so many more opportunities now in life. Life is more fun. The experience of being a single adult in a secular society with economic growth over time, contraception, you know, there's just so much more to gain from not having kids now, where the experience of having a family is kind of roughly the same as it was 50 years ago. But the experience of being a single adult in a secular society with so many options, so many things to do, much more wealth and much more that your money can buy, much more experiences that your money can buy that then get shackled when you have kids. I think the the uh, the gap between the life you get with and without kids has has grown because life has gotten better in a way. Yeah, and, I think that's, and, and yeah. absent yeah, absent like a religious type value on big families, the average self-interested person is just going to delay having kids for as long as possible. And the more you delay it, the less likely it is to happen, period. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that also there's a tendency to underestimate how fertility does decline amongst women. I mean, in, in vitro and some of these techniques are not anywhere near as successful as some people think. I mean, this is the argument of a demographer called Vigard Skierbeck, who, who in his recent book. And yeah, and I think Brad Wilcox and I, we did this uh, this book, I think in 2015 on the causes and consequences of low fertility, where we was an edited collection. We brought together demographers who discussed this. And yeah, the, the general consensus was a lot of countries are pursuing these policies, you know, baby bonuses and, and all kinds of things. And it's not, the, the record is one of failure generally. I mean, there are some people who would argue that Russia and Hungary. I mean, if you keep changing the, put in a new pronatalist incentive every few years, you could maybe get it, the birth rates higher. I, I mean, France is a country that's close to replacement and has been worried about its fertility for 200 years since the Napoleonic era. And, and maybe if you're that kind of country and you've been at it for 200 years, you might, maybe that'll be something that, that will push people towards replacement. But but yeah, I think you're right in general. And the fact this is occurring East Asia, in in Southern Europe, in, in the Ger- German-speaking countries and now increasingly even in the so the countries like Scandinavia and the Anglo-Saxon world that were closest to replacement like Britain has dropped from something like 
two children per woman about 10 years ago to 1.55. So in a period of not much more than a decade, they've really dropped. Some of the Scandinavian countries have come down significantly as well. So some of the sort of stars in this uh, have have also dropped. And, And yeah, I think if you look at the data, the difference between a white French woman who is a regular attending Catholic and a white French woman who does not identify as religious is sort of a half child. And, and across European countries, a quarter to a half child, which if you multiply that over generations, could become quite significant if the rate of religious secularization, the rate of people moving away from religion starts to slacken and the boundaries between the religious and the non-religious start to harden, then we could start to see a sort of different path between those two. So I find this argument very compelling. At the same time, most past straight line predictions just don't end up being true for reasons that are unforeseen by the predictors at the time. If we were sitting here at 2100 and for some reason, like, let's say like your thesis is wrong, what would be like the most likely oversight? Well, it's a good question. You know, what could happen? I mean, you could get a sect to church moderating movement occur in the Amish, the ultra-Orthodox, etc., that would lead to declining birth rates. You, you might even get the Israeli state being able to convince the rabbis to go for, uh, to, to issue injunctions to have lower birth rates. I think these are, I think they're very hard for me to imagine now because the whole basis of the scholar society and ultra-Orthodoxy would militate against that. But that is a possibility. We've seen this in the past. You know, the Mormons moderating, perhaps converging now. But I think it's a different thing to talk about a a closed world denying sect versus the Mormons who are always open, always proselytizing. So I guess that's one thing that could happen. I mean, you know, we don't, we live in tolerant liberal societies, this, which is, is actually a perfect environment for the growth of religious demography. If there was a group in China that had very high birth rates and that had anti-system values, the Chinese government would, would step in and say, you can have two kids and that's it, Uh, which they They've kind of already done to some degree with the Uyghurs, but so in an authoritarian system, an authoritarian government could fix the problem very quickly. And indeed, in fact, if you look at ultra-Orthodoxy, it was non-adaptive when you had Nazis going around hunting Jews. They were the ones who were least able to to kind of disguise themselves and escape. So in a in an authoritarian environment, it's not an evolutionary strategy, but in a liberal, tolerant environment, it's it's a very good evolutionary strategy. So I guess if the environment becomes more authoritarian, then the, the the strategy that they're pursuing will not be as successful. Is there any possibility that secular societies form like high birth rate beliefs? It's very difficult for me to see. Or is that just like a contradiction inherently? I mean, it's not impossible if you get some kind of a millenarian secular ideology that values high birth rates. And I know there are a few writers, and, and their name escapes me now, that they're proposing exactly this, that it's, it's almost like an effective altruist thing, like we've got to have kids. Yeah, I think it's Simone and Malcolm Collins. Yes, They have like right. a pragmatist guide to a new religion, to building a new religion. They want to create, they care about this problem, and they're like, their solution is we have to get the atheists to have more babies, but not with a public policy solution with like a values, with like a secular cult of, of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. And the pro- the only problem is a lot, like a lot of these secular religions like uh, Saint-Simon and, and I'm, I'm talking about what Henri de Saint-Simon's secular religion was called in the early 19th century, but a lot of these have fizzled very quickly. Fourier and some of these communes of the 19th century and the, the secular ones haven't, la- there was a study that showed the secular ones didn't last as long, but, but yeah, I mean, maybe you could create a religion, but it's very hard to, to, to create an artificial religion like that it's might be hard. It's very hard to create from scratch. I think part of it's because when it has no history to it and no tradition, when you're building the new tradition, it, it's it's less of a hook for people than if 
folks have been doing it for hundreds or thousands of years. But I mean, the other so there's like a yeah. hump it has to get over for it to yeah. be compelling in, yeah. in some way. Just a time hump. I don't know. It's a yeah. weird phrase, but yeah. Yeah, you have to perhaps build up a symbol system and affections to founders and and heroes and rituals. But I mean, the other possibility is that you might get an equilibrium forming where just enough defection occurs amongst the religious to feed the deficit amongst the secular. And so as long as the secular are, are winning on the switching front by enough, they don't have to match birth rates, but they, but they have to make sure that the flow of personnel coming in from the religious to secular conversion stream is high enough to maintain the equilibrium and an equilibrium that's in their favor. We can see in a case like Israel that that's failed. They've lost it or they're losing that that battle in Israel. But maybe, maybe in another situation uh, with enough defection, it might be possible to sustain. The last thing I should say is there is, there is sort of work on the genetics of... So there's an argument that says, well, okay, we're going through a population bottleneck in a world where we have contraception and you don't have to have kids to have sex it becomes a choice, becomes value-based. There are some people who innately ha like kids, like large families, and that's hereditary. And once we've, once the genes for people who don't have, people who don't have that gene to like large families are weeded out of the population over time because of low, low birth rates, they don't reproduce, you'll get a secular population of people who are just genetically wired to like large families, and then you'll get a, a rebound. And now that, I mean, that depends on how genetic the design for larger families is. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the, the same person that predicted that <laughs> might predict that we'd have far fewer gay people now than we do, right? Like gay uh, homosexuals have persisted over, over time to a remarkable degree, despite the fact that you would think if they don't leave children that the numbers would go down over time, but actually, actually no. Well, unless you make a group selection argument that if gay people become priests who can encourage a more cohesive pronatalist or stronger society. I, I'm, I'm just trying to think about how an evolutionary biologist or somebody would, or a cultural evolutionist would argue this, would say, well, if, if they can fulfill a role in a society that enhances this fitness of the society, then in fact, they could be enhancing the evolutionary success of a society. That's um, pretty, so, yeah, yeah, that's, I know, that's so. pretty um, five head, as yeah, they say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I've noticed, I don't know if I've noticed it for the first time, but I noticed it mo most prominently this past Last year was that during Pride Month, which is June, right? This past Pride, there were multiple instances of Muslim immigrant groups in America protesting the various symbols and manifestations of Pride. Uh, I forget which town it was. It may, it may have been in, in either Mich Michigan or Minnesota. Yeah, Hamtramck in, in yeah, Detroit. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, thank you. That was there. Ha yeah. Hamtramck, yeah. They, I believe they protested the placement of a Pride flag on a municipal building or something, some such. It seems to me there's a, there's, there's been a clear theoretical but now empirically emerging contradiction between two values on the left, which are lots of immigration uh, and immigration made as easy as possible and pro-LGBT, LGBTQ, because I, I think the, tell me if I'm wrong here, the, the median immigrant, the median migrant probably makes the country less friendly to LGBTQ rights on the margin. So is this, do you see this as a, as a long run contradiction in current uh, American progressive values? 
Oh, oh, absolutely. It's so interesting you raise that. Again, I mentioned that Million Person March in Canada yesterday. Uh, the person who founded that march is a Muslim Canadian, Kamal Sheikh, who's the leader of this, one of the leaders. And a lot of a lot of Canadian Muslims are showing up at these, were showing up these protests, you know, alongside Christians, alongside conservative and others. So yeah, that's, that is a sort of reconfiguration, a sort of tension. And the, the sort of minority vote is, you know, the immigrant minority Minority vote is a, is a is a key swing constituency in Canada because they live in the suburban belt around Toronto, where more people switch their vote election to election. This could be something that gives the Conservatives a very important advantage uh, in Canada. They're, they're, conservatives are leading now in the polls by quite a margin. In Britain, we're we're seeing similar protests by uh, Muslim parents at at schools uh, over gender ideology. And yeah, I think this is this is a really interesting tension in that multicultural. Coalition now. Have we seen it before? Well, yes, we have. Proposition eight in California, the the gay anti-gay marriage proposition, which was carried with the support of evangelical Christians, uh, Latino Catholics, Muslims, and others, showed the power of that coalition on the on the conservative side. Now, ultimately, gay marriage is no longer a controversial issue here, but of course, the gender ideology stuff is and is more likely to remain controversial because it's not so much a civil rights issue, but it's really pitting the rights of two two groups of people against each other, um, or, or it's pitting competing rights, pitting competing rights claims against each other. So it's unlikely to simply resolve in the same way the, the gay marriage uh, thing resolves. So yeah, I mean, if this becomes a major and rising, increasingly salient political issue, it could greatly affect, you know, it could have a big impact on the coalitions that unite behind the, the left and the right. So yeah, I, I think that's a good indication of where you have a contradiction within the progressive movement. I mean, of course, you also have this contradiction between feminism and G- LGBT, right, over uh, women's spaces. So, so there are certainly a significant, there's a significant feminist, gender crit- critical feminist opposition to trans women entering into women's spaces, women's shelters, women's sports, etc. So there are all these, yeah, there are, this is just another one of those tensions when you've got a, when the only thing that's uniting you is that you're opposed to something, but the differences within your, your views come to light. Okay, so I had Garrett Jones on this podcast a little while back, the economist uh, from George Mason University, who's written about immigration and and cultural change over time. And he has this argument that basically, you know, assimilation is something of a myth, because if you look at the different second and third and even fourth, et cetera, generations of of, of Americans, even, even just looking at white Americans and which European countries their ancestors came from, you find a correlation in certain um, certain traits like savings, uh, savings rates and level of trust. Uh, you'll find like Italian Americans correlated with modern day Italians, uh, German Americans correlated with uh, modern day Germans and so on and so forth. I didn't really draw the lesson from his data that he did because there were other aspects like views towards women and and um, and religion where there was no correlation, uh, even on his own account. So to me, it felt more like a mixed story rather than assimilation doesn't work. What is your your uh, your your perception of that question? Is he is he right there? And uh, what are the implications of that for immigration and cultural change? 
I guess on balance, I, I am more of a believer that assimilation uh, is a powerful process. I mean, I think the other thing, of course, and I'm not sure, I have to kind of read his book, which I haven't got around to doing and I want to do. Um, obviously, intermarriage is so pervasive now in Western society, certainly within the white supra-ethnic group. I mean, it's very hard to find somebody who is entirely Irish, entirely Italian anymore. And so I wonder what the theory is for somebody who's like a quarter Italian, quarter Irish, quarter German, which, I mean, that's much more the norm rather than being entirely one or entirely other. So I guess I would be somewhat skeptical. Now, I, what I would say is there's no question that there is some influence from the values of your parents, their outlooks going down into the next generation, the next generation. But I guess my general view is that ultimately assimilation overrides the legacy of these these outlooks and traits. And you can kind of see, you know, most groups in the world have absorbed others. You know, the, the, the Greeks have absorbed large numbers of Slavs over time in Greece. Um, Sicily is an island that has had Arabs and Normans and, and all kinds of people washing through there. And ultimately, the Hungarians are, have were a melting pot at one time, uh, have solidified into something else. So I'm not, uh, I mean, now the question is the time scale, right? I mean, maybe within the time scale of one or two generations, you can get a persistence of some of these outlooks. I guess I would be skeptical whether it would survive more than, say, three, four generations, especially when you get intermarriage and melting. I'm just not sure that that's, that's likely. Now, it's, the other thing I should say, by the way, is it is true that there are different political cultures in America. And if immigrants are coming or Italians move to New York, which had a less moralistic political culture, let's say, than rural New England. You know, rural New England had that more moralistic Yankee culture. New York had a much more commercial, less, more corrupt politics that goes back, way back to Tammany Hall and so on. And if immigrants come into that culture, they'll be socialized into that culture, which is maybe more similar to Southern Italy and that kind of culture than it would be to Yankee New England. What's the fate of evangelical Christianity in America, in your view? given demographic birth rates and long run cultural change, because it seems like your thesis is sort of that, like the, the world denying, the deep world denying sects are the ones that are going to multiply, but not necessarily the more, let's say, down to earth religious. Right. And so that's right. So the evangelical Protestants, their birth rates have, they're not fully converged to the liberal sects. So there's still a gap, I think probably a gap of maybe 0.2, 0.3 between the regular church-going Christian evangelical, the reg regular church-going Episcopalian. It's not a large gap. The gap is mainly between church, regular church attenders and non-attenders. Now, some of the radical independent neo-Calvinist sects will have a sort of birth rate pushing three, but for the most part, they're, they're now below replacement. Although one thing, of course, is that they have higher retention, they have high, somewhat higher birth rates, and so evangelical Christianity is doing a hell of a lot better than mainline liberal Christianity. I mean, the mainline liberal Christianity is just hemorrhaging. Uh, it's, it's not disappearing. It's more or less almost disappearing, whereas Christianity is becoming increasingly evangelical. And so they're they're doing better than the others, but are they where the Amish and the Mormons are? No, I mean, I'm sorry, the Amish and the ultra-Orthodox are? No, they're not. I mean, it's not as successful because they're open to conversion. They're open to, to loss as well. Now, what's of course interested in the, in, in the U.S. case is you have the political valence, the fact that denomination, as Robert Putnam and Putnam and Campbell wrote, you know, people switch denominations for political reasons now. Uh, there are differences within the evangelical bin between the kind of more moderate and the more conservative, the more traditional evangelical 
evangelicals, other so there's a whole different sub-genre within the, the evangelicals. And and the more strict, the more conservative, I would say probably the better the future in terms of numbers, the more liberal and mainstream, the weaker the future. It's the same in Judaism. The liberal, the more the reform, the conservative, they are, you know, losing in numbers and influence at a rapid rate compared to the orthodox, ultra-orthodox. So it's the same pattern. Uh, what Jim Guth calls the religious restructuring paradigm, where it's the middle's hollowed out and you're either going to secularism or you're going to a stricter religiosity. That's kind of how I predict things to continue. Um, so I'd say probably for strict religion and, and strict evangelicalism, it probably has a good future and will continue to be important. Okay, so treating wokeness as a religion, would you expect it to be, I mean, I'd expect it to be a very low birth rate religion because of, you know, the deep influence of feminism and, you know, like every woman is sort of expected to be like a lesbian girl boss. And that's like what's cool. And motherhood is not particularly, maybe not openly denigrated, but by implication, um, less cool than than the alternatives. And, you know, there, there was just a, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you may have seen this, uh, I think FIRE, uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or actually Expression, they, I think they changed their name. Um, they did a poll of, of American college students and found that something like only like 55% of secular college students identify as straight, which would put some like 45% of, you know, American secular college attending students under a certain age um, as either gay or LGBTQ or amorphously queer or pansexual, so forth. I mean, this sets up is of a piece with a general, generally like kind of a low, probably what is going to be a low birth rate cohort in all likelihood. Does that mean the the those of us that worry about wokeness, does that mean we have less to worry about in the long run? Just by demographics alone, this is going to peter out? That's a that's an interesting question. I guess I would say that the their hold on the power structure in terms of university administrators, HR departments, communications departments is such that they would still manage to recruit, selectively recruit their own and people of like mind and therefore at least perpetuate themselves within the meaning-making institutions of society. So the question then becomes, again, that question as with shall the religious inherit the earth, the demographics are going against them. So how are they going to make up for that through switching? Are they, if they control schools and universities and media and organizational cultures, are they going to be able to entice the children of religious people or or of unwoke people to become woke, to buy into this ideology. Now, the, the FIRE surveys are quite interesting. If you look at, there's a question on there about whether you have the same politics as your parents. And one thing you see is that conservative students are more likely to have the same politics as their parents compared to uh, liberal students. So, so there seems to be a flow of people who had conservative parents who become, who move left. And so the woke side in a way is benefiting from switching. It's a bit the way the secular side benefits from switching the pattern. The trend is from religious to secular, and the trend is also from uh, conservative to liberal. The question is how strong that flow is. One of the things that we might think about, of course, is if there is a growing segregation endogamy by 
partisanship and by religion. So, so part of what's happening on these surveys is people are checking the Christian box. It's, it tends to be Christ, uh, conservative-minded students are much more likely to say they're Christian, even if they're not regular attenders. Uh, whereas maybe the same person will tick the non-religious box if they are a, a leftist woke. And so, but over time, if people who identify as Christian, if those people start to marry other people who identify as Christian and who happen, and that overlaps with being Republican, you know, Republicans are only about a fifth or a quarter of the student body, if they're finding each other. And also if people who aren't Republican aren't willing to date them, which, you know, if you look at the, the survey data and one of the earlier fire surveys showed only only 7% of non-Republican voting female students were willing to date a Trump supporter. I mean, you know, if these patterns of kind of dating discrimination of, of endogamy bed down and we get partisan endogamy and the dating sites might reinforce that, you could foresee a situation that becomes a bit more Israel-like, where you get this high, higher fertility, relatively high retaining kind of Christian conservative population expanding and retaining. And then you're into a different dynamic. You're into a more Israel-like dynamic, which would lead to the woke losing out. However, if if you don't have that degree of boundary maintenance and you have enough flow from conservative to liberal, so the children of conservatives becoming liberal and woke, then that won't come to pass. So it's all in the flows, really. Okay, so this might be a bit of a sh strange question. Um, and if you, if you don't have an answer, that's fine. Uh, but so like, you you have this set of predictions around birth rates because you studied birth rates. Most people don't don't know about this, right? So let's say you had a bunch of money to invest and you wanted to invest it in such a way that it, it will grow because of your knowledge that perhaps the religious will inherit the earth and you have like a 50 to 100 year time horizon. Where would you put that money to sort of beat the market? Because the market doesn't know about this yet, right? Well, I guess you would invest in, in you know, Christian brands and I mean, assuming it's a or religious, if it's Christian or it's Jewish or Muslim, but yeah, ideally you may probably invest in religiously branded companies and universities and schools. And, you know, if that's going to be the larger part of your population, then that'll be the growth. And if you have a brand that's going to appeal to these people in a way that they have nothing that's catering to them now, because you could sort of say that the market right now caters heavily to the secular liberal consumer and particularly young person. But if you explicitly target this kind of conservative Christian market, which maybe isn't being catered for. And the laws of supply and demand would say the price should be high and sales should be should be buoyant. But so that would be down the road. Something like know? what Daily Wire is trying to sort of make right-wing movies in a way, right? They're trying to make, because um, Hollywood is very skewed liberal relative probably to the market for movies in general. Um, I mean, you can't imagine Hollywood making like a right-wing Barbie, for example, so maybe maybe Daily Wire's thesis around entertainment is like a long bet that may really pay off. Well, yeah, I mean, imagine if, yeah, if you were in Israel and you could target the ultra-Orthodox, I mean, that's a pretty good bet that that's going to be a growing market. If you get their loyalty, then, you know, yeah, I mean, you're going to, you can ride that. Um, and so if that crystallizes here, um, you know, one thing we, we've started to see some uh, conservative market power, you know, with the Bud Light, you know, there are a few 
instances where we started to see that market power emerge. I mean, Richard Hanania has this argument that liberals care more, liberal, which is a sort of US version of the term for cultural left, but that they care more. Uh, and so, you know, they will boycott, they will, you know, not buy from, or, or they will buy from Ben and Jerry's if they get, if they get the virtue signaling. Um, you know, if you start to see that happening, I think it is to, true to some extent. So it is no question that the case that in opinion surveys, people who identify as progressive activists, cultural left, that group are more likely to attend protests, to participate in politics, to donate. You know, so if you look at donations data, you just have to look at donations data, say, by for, for parties, and you can see this massive skew in favor of the Democrats when it comes to political donations. So like 90, I think it's 98% of donations for Harvard staff went to the Democrats. And that's that's typical year after year. Doesn't necessarily mean 98% of Democrats are, or 98% of Harvard staff are Democrats, but it means that the politically committed group is almost entirely Democrat. So yes, they do have an advantage, but it could be the case that conservatives may be able to mobilize and, and may be able to actually bring more people into politics, perhaps raise consciousness to somewhat even that up a little bit. Right now, I think it's certainly the case. So it used to be the case that there were strong civic associations on the right, particularly working class ones, the American Legion, Daughters of the American Revolution, Grand Army of the Republic, these kind of very large chapter-based fraternities. And they would channel, they would almost politicize the membership to some extent and bring in all of these people who are now probably apolitical, but bring them into politics get them onto, on the street. Northern Ireland is an example of that. The Orange Order, which I've studied as, an, as a movement, Protestant fraternity, you know, they can bring tens of thousands of people on the street as a conservative movement. Now, what there aren't that many grassroots conservative movements that can do that. To some degree, the religious right can do that, but outside of the religious right, say the anti-woke right, can it put easily, can it get tens, hundreds of thousands of people on the street in a city in a protest? Probably not. And so that is a difference, whereas the left can. You know, the BLM, we saw that. So the mobilizing capacity is just greater. But over time, maybe that could change. Maybe social media might play a role in that. Okay. So um, you quote Scott Atran in the book saying, quote, no human society has survived without religion for more than two generations. Is that really true? And and what, like in, define the terms kind of used there. I don't fully agree with that because, and it depends how you define secularization and religion. You know, some would say secularism is just separation of politics from a separation of church and state, that that's what secularism is about. Others would say, like Steve Bruce, no, it's about private belief and, and private religiosity. And so you get societies where that have low private belief, attendance, religiosity. Now, I'd say Northern Europe and France have been in that situation now for more than two generations. And I don't know. I mean, they're going to survive. Now, you could say Maybe the birth rates will be lower. Maybe there's going to be more out of wedlock births. Maybe there'll be more certain kinds of social problems and maybe a certain drag on economic productivity, perhaps. But then a highly religious society has other problems around intolerance, around maybe not being as open to change, which could drag the economy down. So it's not obvious to me that this, this two generations thesis works. And yeah, so I'm not I'm not totally sold on that that argument. Are artificial wombs going to rescue secular people? Because, you know, if you if you if we get those in the next hundred years, you get a situation where today you're, you're you know, you're a 20 year old liberal you get pregnant accidentally, you get an abortion. 50 or 100 years, you get pregnant accidentally. Maybe there's perfect artificial wombs. You um, essentially, the womb carries the child and it gets 
somehow put up for adoption into another secular liberal family or something, does that come to the rescue or is that just uh, sci-fi, I don't know, irrelevance? Well, I think it'll make some difference if the technology's there to allow you to preserve eggs, you know, even some in vitro, if all, if that all gets better. Yeah, I think that will definitely help the secular population more than the religious population. And Although to that- now I'm thinking if the religious are the ones adopting all the kids, right. then it's a moot point. Yeah, and I, I'm not on top of the numbers on that uh, to know, but I don't think it's going to be the silver bullet. I think it might make some difference at the edge edges, but ultimately I don't think that's going to alter the general thrust. Okay, so do you think countries like America and France will fare better in, in the new, more religious world because of the strong separation of church and state? as opposed to countries that have less of that tradition in, in their politics? That's, yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, one there there was an argument that said, if you have a separation of church and state, you know, that, that, that having a state religion, you know, Greek Orthodoxy, Anglicanism in, in, in England is a bit like having a state-run economy and that it stunts it's innovation and creativity. And so you don't get the religion catering to different categories of human demand. Whereas in the United States, because there was a separation, uh, you got more religious innovation, tent revivals or mega churches or whatever. Um, and I think there may be something to that, but a lot of the studies that have looked at the degree of separation, the degree of religious diversity and the health of religion don't seem to show much of an effect because the counter argument is when you have a diversity of religions, uh, that doesn't necessarily lead to competition and greater religiosity. It could mean that people look around and say, oh, uh, my religion isn't the only one true faith, one true God, if they're believing other things, and that toleration can also lead to the erosion of religion. That was Steve Bruce's kind of hypothesis against the religious market school, which were the opposite of of the secularization theorists. They each have an argument. I don't think the data is clear cut in favor of the religious markets argument, actually. I think it's sort of a bit of a draw right now. So I don't necessarily think that's going to save the U.S. or make the U.S. a more religiously vibrant uh, society. Now, I mean, it does seem, one thing I would say is it looks like that big shot religious decline amongst young people that you we've we've had in the US the last 20 years or something. I mean, it does seem there are some signs of stabilization in, in the Zoomers. And so maybe that big drop has is stabilizing and coming out at a level that is still much higher than in Europe. So we'll have to we'll have to wait and see whether there is continued religious decline as we go past Gen Z. I don't know who exactly put it this way. I, I heard someone say this recently. So it's, it's not I'm, I just want to flag that. So no one accuses me of stealing something. But someone um, someone said something like, when we look back at this moment in history, we may end up saying that secular liberalism was brief and beautiful, you know, in the sense that it was, it's, it was, it's fantastic to live in a society. As I grew up, I did not grow up with any religion to speak of, with any, um, really with any irrational otherworldly values. I was uh, encouraged to pursue in like a I suppose, common sense, ethical way, the things that I wanted to do. And and there's a lot to that. You know, had I been gay, I would have been accepted by my community, which which is a great boon. Had I been, you know, had I had some other non-standard preferences or identities in some way, I, you know, there, there's a lot to be said for secular liberal tolerance and but if it if it's unable to sustain itself in the in the very long run, does that I mean, should, should we rate secular liberalism l- lower if it if it's not self-sustaining? 
Yeah, really interesting because you you know there's the empirical what is likely to happen, and then the the normative you know what does the good society look like? Like you, I was raised in a secular environment and basically a secular individual didn't have any of this any religious upbringing. Um, and and I agree, there's a certain you know you can be rational, you can be free. You don't have to now. Of course, there are many different stripes of religion, and some are are, are some are saying that the world's four thousand years old, but obviously a lot have have made their peace with science, and so I think there's less of a less friction there. But but yeah, I think, look, I mean, I think there will always be secular uh, liberal people. Uh, the question is whether a, a secular liberal society is sustainable. And that, yes, it could be a moment, particularly the secular left liberal combination, I think is, I guess I would see that as quite tricky to maintain. Now, if they have total control of the mechanism uh, mechanisms of socialization, they don't have too many highly resistant sects like the Amish and the ultra-Orthodox. And, and that's probably the case in ma- many continental European countries, with the exception of maybe the Netherlands, to some degree Finland, and to some degree Britain. But outside of that, if you don't have these very sort of world-denying sects, you can probably keep it going for quite a while, quite a while longer. But yeah, I would say it may be a temporary phase. Now, I, I would say if we take sort of a secular, a less liberal form of secularism, like in China, for example, right? So if we take a, a kind of a system that is secular, but not liberal, I would say that system would be definitely more durable because if there is a challenge from a, a religious group, the state will act on it in an, in an authoritarian way. And actually, even in U.S. history, I mean, you've had the American federal government essentially marched into Utah and said, you're not having polygamy. End of story. I mean, so there have been periods in the past where uh, the U.S. has sort of drawn and a line. And the reason they got to Utah in the first place was persecution, right? I mean, they, didn't they used to, they used to be in Missouri and the governor of Missouri in the 1800s issued an executive order to kill Mormons on site and, and they fled. And, and yeah, so their, their history has involved a lot of that now. Right. So, so an illiberal secularism probably is robust to that challenge, but can a liberal secularism really deal? So what's Israel, what is, what are secular liberal Israelis going to do as the ultra-Orthodox become the majority? Now they could say, let's see if we can encourage them to migrate and leave by giving them incentives, but then someone has to accept them. Uh, maybe some South American country, or I don't know, but I think it's, it's very unlikely, unlikely, you know, like yeah. the, the one Jewish state as its identity tries to get rid of one sect of, of Jews. Right. And so it yeah. kind of, there's a kind so of, how, how do they accept becoming kind of a minority? Right. And so it is a contradiction between liberal, uh, within liberalism, it's the sort of tolerance paradox, toleration paradox, which I think goes back to the ancient Aristotle or somebody made this point. But yeah, if your ethos is toleration, you know, how do you tolerate the intolerant? Is there a case for not tolerating the intolerant because it threatens your liberal order? And maybe Israel gets to that point. I mean, it's very interesting to see the battles now in the Supreme, over the Supreme Court in Israel, which I think are underpinned to some degree by these demographic shifts to the right, you know, to the to the conservative religious side. Uh, but there has been a certain degree, I think, of almost denial or unwillingness to face the reality. There, you, you often meet secular Israelis who say, oh, they will, you know, they're losing all kinds, the kids won't, won't remain uh, ultra-Orthodox. And yet uh, the data is just not there to, to sustain that. But at some point, it's going to become more and more manifest and more and more real and apparent. So I guess we'll have to watch what, what Israel does. Now, Israel has that secular nationalism. You know, the secular nationalism is to, can be perhaps an alternative belief system. Will that, but then I suppose it, 
that would have to lead in an authoritarian direction if they're going to actually be able to arrest the growth of ultra-Orthodox. I mean, it's the only possible way unless they're able to convince the rabbis to bring the birth rate down because it's a threat to social peace. Maybe they can do that, but we'll have to watch that space. Are religious people happier? Uh, yes, they are. I mean, I think the data is pretty clear on that. Um, now, there's an argument about is this because um, they have community, you know, they have, reg you know, some would say that this is due to regular attendance, participating in community and charity, and, and you're drawn into a wider community, so you have more face-to-face -face contact, that that's really the effect. So you could, in theory, get that in some kind of a secular organization, but it's just hard to know what that would be that could replicate that communitarian function. But yes, I think that the data is there that the religious are more happy. So in a way, I want to Ask Stephen Pinker this, you know, you can say religion is irrational, but if it's leading to greater happiness, is it not rational, right? I mean, if they're the ones who are achieving what seems to be the irrational aim of a utility maximizer, then perhaps that belief in, in religion is a more rational way to go. It's a tricky question because obviously religious belief involves involves certain irrational beliefs which go, which go against scientific rationality, at least in uh, certain strands of religion. I'm pretty open to the idea that religious people are happier. Um, somehow that that goes down smooth with me, even as an as an atheist and a secular person. Only problem is I, I can't choose to believe something because it would make me happier to believe. I, I literally can't do it. If I could, I might. I mean, look, if you told me I could believe X and it would it would probably make me happier. I think I would do it. I think I'd be an idiot not to do it. I mean, I, I make all other kinds of interventions to to be happier, like exercise, daily exercise. And, you know, I, I do all, all kinds of things in life precisely to become happier at great cost sometime. The problem is I just can't, I can't actually believe something. I, I, it's, I think it's too late for me to believe in any holy book or any God, unless I, you know, I, Jesus Christ literally walks up to me and says, hey, I, I can't do it on faith. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. The other thing, of course, is, you know, most of a person's happiness is not due to religiosity. So in a way, it may make some difference to your happiness. It may make some difference to your lifespan, maybe. But, uh, you know, maybe for you as an individual, it's not going to make much difference. I mean, there are, of course, other things correlated with happiness. I mean, one of the strongest, of course, is also conservatism. I mean, conservatives are a lot happier than people yeah. on the left. I mean, does that mean that... So what is that about? That's extremely well established. There's a, there's a great article by um, by my friend Musa Al-Garbi really just like laying out the evidence. Uh, it, and it just seems to be a well-established fact right now in America that conservatives are happy, happier and young liberals are, are the least happy, the, the most mentally ill. Um, what is that about? Is that is that a, a knock-on effect of the religion or is, does that have a separate dimension of its own? I think it's quite separate. I think the religiosity question is quite separate from the woke question. And this is where, I, I mean, we, we can talk about that in, in a minute. I, I'm not sure the one is a substitute for the other. But what what I think is going on partly is with conservatives and the conservative mindset is that conservatism is associated with this idea of thicker boundaries to the self, whereas being on the left is, 
it's it's more thin bounded where you have less of a sort of stable sense of self and there's more variability like do I choose this gender or that gender do I choose this this way to be or that way to be you know sexual sexuality more of those questions which generates a certain amount of anime and a certain amount of uncertainty and a certain amount of so I just think it's it's a less stable sense of self uh, less integrated perhaps into community life you can actually find this relationship going back though in the data and the general social survey um, so it's not a new going finding yeah and so it's not a necessarily a new finding although I think because of the rise in mental illness uh, amongst young people the gaps now are looking bigger right so and, it's and not so, wokeness per se it's something m- more fundamental about what you what you would probably call the cultural left yeah I think that's right I mean, and so here's another obviously LGBT people I mean if you look at US data on teens the CDC data I, I saw showed that about three quarters of LGBT teens I think I don't know if the question basically they had a mental health issue whether it was anxiety or depression or feeling persistently hopeless the, the number the equivalent number was sort of 55 for women compared to 75 for LGBT 45 for men and then I think black men were a bit lower like 35 so you have this kind of range. So there's definitely this big gap. LGBT are less happy. But even within the LGBT, the gays and lesbians who are uh, leading a gay and lesbian, have a gay and lesbian sexual life. They're happier. Are happier. That strikes me as very true. Because I mean, if I if I just think of the gay men I know personally, they all seem very happy. Like the, 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 when I picture the, the picture of mental illness of people I've met over my life have tended to be the queer and questioning, more likely to be women rather than someone who's just like, yep, I'm a gay man, that it's a very simple identity. It's a very defined identity. I know exactly who I am. And and that may be something about the solidity of an identity rather than lumping all LGBTQ together as, as the unhappiness. It's like the, the, the ones that are fluid and constantly questioning, is that what leads to the unhappiness? Yeah, exactly right. So if for political reasons, for trendy reasons, they're kind of pushing against their heterosexuality, you know? And so the General Social Survey asked people about the number of sexual partners in the past five years, and it's been doing that for decades, and whether they're male or female or something else. You know, one of the things we're seeing is that if you take female bisexuals, uh, it used to be the case that most of them, their sexual partners would have been women. Now, female bisexuals, 60% of their partners, they've only had male heterosexual partners. So what you're getting is essentially people who are not in practice LGBT, but they're identifying as LGBT. They're the ones who have the highest levels of, of mental illness. And so, and, and I think what that speaks to is this kind of indeterminacy, this lack of solidity, the lack of boundedness. I think that's, if I were to say, I think that's probably what's behind this. So which way does the causation go though? Because I can also picture being mentally ill people, people that are depressed because of their depression, they go searching for an identity. They say, something must be wrong. I must be, uh, maybe I'm, I need to be something else. And maybe that's why I'm sad. So they go searching for an identity in, in the, and the ones on offer are queer, pansexual, and maybe happiness lies there. And then you get the correlation, but it, it goes in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I so I think that that could there, there's an element of that. We have to account, for course, for the rise in youth mental illness, youth LGBT identification. They both increased over time. There is some data. There's a high school study in Wisconsin, I think, that seems to show that 
LGBT have become more unhappy over time. They weren't as unhappy. They become more unhappy over time. Now, yeah, I guess that's still potentially potentially explicable on, in a selection model of, of unhappy people selecting into LGBT. But then why is the why are the total number of unhappy people going up? Whereas, I mean, I think you can tell a story about, you know, we do see that. So, for example, there's also a relationship to ideology. Um, the big rise in LGBT identification has occurred almost entirely within the group that identify as very liberal on a five-point scale from very liberal to very conservative. So it's happening within this kind of leftmost block. They're the ones that have gone really for LGBT uh, identification. I mean, it is possible that unhappy people select into being left-wing and into being LGBT. I'm not, I can't disprove that without longitudinal, longitudinal data, which we just don't have. But I suppose my inclination would be to say that given the, the pattern, the timing of the increase, that, that it looks more like on the left, there's a certain, not pressure, but a certain drift of the culture that will push people in the direction of unconventional behaviors, unconventional sexualities, and that that's in some ways connected with lack of happiness, which I, su I suppose I interpreted as a kind of enemy coming out of indeterminacy, lack of boundedness, um, and that that is what's behind this. There was a book actually by Boston University sociologist Leah Greenfeld who, who says that when... England and France, when they had their kind of revolution, French Revolution, for example, and people no longer had their occupations and their status given to them from their parents. And you had a more of a, a democratic national society, less of a sort of dynastic, aristocratic society. There was a lot more confusion around roles. You, know, you didn't know what your position was in life. It was much more up for grabs. And in that environment, you got an increase, an increase in madness, what they call madness. Um, so her thesis so we, is that whenever you get call anxiety today, yeah, I when mean, there's yeah. less solidity in in social roles and identities, and and it's much more of a choice and it's much more indeterminate, then this lack of boundedness leads to a, a greater increase in mental illness. So that was her her argument, and I so I think you could make that argument today. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think I think there's something to that. You know, I I, I question. To, to some extent, it, it's always easy to critique your reality because you haven't lived the alternatives. I've never lived in a strict role, uh, a, a, a world with strict roles handed down. That had that had its own, I assume, downsides, which is that people sometimes strongly felt they didn't fit into their role and needed to, you know, be let out of a prison, right? When you go to the opposite extreme where, you know, anyone can be anything and there's no set of rules and your, your life becomes a create your own adventure kind of book. Some people are far more suited to that than others. I think many people might find that they don't know how to create their own adventure. They don't really know how to um, self-invent because it's actually a very difficult thing to do. And some people might be better served with kind of a a playbook, so to speak, for, for who to be and how to be. So let's, obviously, one lesson you might draw from this is to get happier, I should become a religious conservative, right? I've given the reason why I can't become religious, right? And I think there's a big mental barrier to people becoming conservative. So, and in a way, it, it seems like we both agree the the happiness premium from being both religious and conservative as opposed to secular and liberal, it's not about those labels. It's about something deeper correlated with them, right? So pulling out those dimensions, an important lesson for happiness, I think two important lessons for happiness might be aggressively create and sustain a community, right? Like prioritize 
face-to-face interactions with a set of people, your friends, your family, and don't let that take a backseat in life. And then also define yourself solidly, solidly, you know, know who you are and really be that person, right? Don't try to avoid constant searching for some marginally truer self, I guess. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that having a certain degree of solidity, a certain degree of connectedness with the world is probably the key to this. So, but I also think that certain people like yourself, others are are probably going to be able to manage this better than others. And it may be that young people, working class people might not be able to manage the degree of indeterminacy, indeterminacy as well. Like if we don't have religion, we don't have a certain family norm anymore, or we don't have certain sexuality norm. I mean, maybe that hits certain kinds of populations like younger people or uh, people who are working class. Maybe they need more structure perhaps, or or a more degree to which identities are given, scripts of life are given, whereas maybe other people don't need that and maybe they are able to select. And, and so you see, for example, you know, the upper middle class is does seem to be able to handle sexual freedom that we have the the different d- the divorce the alternative family arrangements they still seem to have intact families they don't have high rates of divorce they don't have the kind of social problems that people who come who, you know working class people have i mean that's the sort of charles murray kind of argument um and similarly maybe older people can handle the freedom better than adolescents. Uh, that may also be true. And the question, yeah, we probably have to strike a balance between you know having a certain amount of freedom, but then maybe having certain role expectations at a certain point in life. And maybe that's the balance we need we need to strike. <laughs> but I agree with you. You can't just go believing in things you don't believe in. I mean, if the, if you find them unconvincing, and and I I probably agree with you there. Then then there's just no way you can force yourself into it. But I mean, it's also a bit like you know. Divorce or, or men have a problem being single. Their happiness really tanks when they when they come out of a marriage, or they you know. Whereas women's happiness doesn't doesn't as much. So women are able to handle being single, and and presumably their place doesn't look like a pigsty, and they're having pizza every night. Um, so <laughs> they you know men are probably more vulnerable, uh, less able to handle that freedom of singlehood, perhaps. Um, so yeah, I think there's probably just certain populations that are are less able to to adapt to that level of freedom. Okay, so Eric Kaufman, this has been great. I think you have a book coming out in May or Mar- March? When is it coming it's out? It's in May. Okay, yeah. so um, I'll have you back on to discuss that, but I guess you can tease it slightly. What, what's that going to be about? Well, yeah, so it's about everyone's favorite topic, which is kind of the origin and politics of, of woke. Um, so was, it, was there some kind of agreement that every, <laughs> every book about the origin of wokeness was going to come out between like last month and six months from now? Yeah, I know. Yasha I, Monk, Richard Hanania, Christopher Rufo. My book is not really about the origins of wokeness per okay. se, but it's it touches on it. So, but this is great. I mean, I don't know who, what, what, what cabal in the publishing industry decided that it. it well, <laughs> it's a positive or a negative, right? So I I just did a review of Rufo and Hanania in yes. in Law and Liberty, and I'm now reviewing the new um, Lukianov and Schlott book alongside Yasha's book. But but I th- I would say you know so it, it could be that you get the joint reviews or it just too crowded a market. I mean, yeah, this will be is it'll be called Taboo. Uh, how making race sacred led to a cultural revolution. So it's I'm kind of focusing much more, not so much on the kind of you know, neo-Marxist intellectuals the way Rufo did, 
or the legal civil rights institutions the way Hanania did. I'm much more looking at mainstream left liberal culture, people who are not about revolution, but they are about compassion and guilt. And and I think that's a more important, it's a much more numeric, a larger group numerically, because it's not, you know, yes, we can see the continuities between the Black Panthers and BLM or the Weathermen and Antifa. We can see those continuities in their intellectual program and even personnel to some degree. But explaining the resonance, you know, why did so many people march with BLM? Why did all these universities fall over themselves to hire these former Weathermen and the former Panthers? Uh, you know, explaining the, the, the pickup of these very radical ideas within the kind of non-revolutionary uh, liberal left is, I think, very important. And so I'm kind of looking a lot at the sort of moral order and how it's shaken up by the, what Shelby Steele pointed to, which was the rise of the racist, anti-race taboo in, or anti-racism taboo in the mid-60s, and then how that gets stretched and weaponized in different ways. So that'll be the core of the book. And then I also, you know, have a policy section as well. All right. Well, I'll be happy to have you back when that comes out. Great. For now, thank you so much for Eric Thanks, Coleman. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.